The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. My guest today is an award-winning novelist, a collateral descendant of the Victorian novelist Anthony Trollope. She has carved out her own reputation for writing novels exploring contemporary life. Her books have made the bestseller list and sold more than 8 million copies worldwide. She's also been dubbed the Queen of the Argus Saga, but more on that later. In reply to those who have suggested that her pieces verge on trivial, Trollope has embodied the spirit of Virginia Woolf. It is a grave mistake to think there is more significance in great things than in little things. At 76, still a working novelist, her 22nd book was recently out. My guest today is Joanna Trollope. Now, before we get on with this episode, it's worth pointing out that I spoke to Joanna just before the coronavirus pandemic took over everyday life. And we actually recorded it from the Spectator office back in the days when you didn't have to worry about two metres to such a degree. So I hope you don't mind the lack of coronavirus mentions. Perhaps you might even find it a welcome relief. Thank you for joining me, Joanna. Now, in this podcast, before we get to the present day, what we like to do is rewind the hands of time to what you're doing before your current career. You were born in your granddad's rectory in a Cotswolds village. I was at the very end of 1943, so that everybody can now work out exactly how old I am. But I was born into a world where um, women weren't encouraged to work at all. But your mother was an artist. My mother was a painter and my father ran... He ended up running a, a building society, but in at the... In the war, before the war, he was working for the railways. He was working for the London and North Eastern Railway, which I, I, has been resurrected now. And then he went off to fight, and he didn't come back. I didn't meet him, I think, till I was about three and a half. And did you have any early childhood career ambitions? I've read that you wrote your first novel, Age 14. I did, which um, is still under- hasn't been published. <laughs> well, it's under lock and key because I'm. I just feel, you know, the girls can sort of fall about with laughter over it when I'm safely dead, but not till then, because it was about the kind of teenager I wished I was instead of the one I actually was. Um, have you reread it much? Or no, I haven't revisited it for a bit, but I wrote it at school. In, I can visualise it now. It was in red spiral-back notebooks. And I suppose I probably filled about three of them. Goodness me, it's very embarrassing, the whole thing. But I was, I was this height. I was about five foot nine with frizzy hair and spectacles and braces on my teeth. Far too tall. Always had to be the boy in dancing classes. And um, it was... It was It was misery. And I wanted to be small and like Jane Fonda, you know, with sticky out pink and white gingham skirts and petticoats. As a a fellow tall person, I I remember (laughs) when my school did um, country dancing, so Scottish Highland dancing, I often had to be the man. Did you grow early? 
yes a child Quite it, it isn't much fun <laughs> it's good later on <laughs> you, it is you mentioned your time um as at school then um you've said in the past you felt like an outsider was that for the reasons you just outlined well it was it was partly because I sounded like this and I was I was state educated I was at a grammar school and everybody else in the school sounded completely normal and there I was I think my sister, myself, and the head girl, who was, I remember, a, a girl called Charlotte Carstairs, um, we were the only ones who sounded like this in the entire school. And I remember my very first lunch at school, I asked someone to pass the... Oh, you, it, I remember it was beetroot, which leaked bright pink into mashed potato. And I asked someone to pass the potatoes, and she said, Oh, la-di-da. And I still remember it. So it was obviously very painful. From school, you went on to study at Oxford University and you won a scholarship. It, but it was, it was a tiny, tiny scholarship. It was almost invisible to the naked eye. It was so small. Were you put forward for that? Or how did it work in those days? In no, you, of... had, you had to stay on in the sixth form to do a seventh term and take Oxford and Cambridge entrance. And I was taught English then. I was reasonably good, but not terribly good at English literature. And I was taught... Do you remember there was a newsreader called Peter Wood? Well, his sister, Dorothy, taught me English. And she saw there was something in this very awkward and unattractive girl. She saw there was something there. And she was absolutely brilliant. She she got me on to Wordsworth. And I think I got my place at Oxford out of, of Wordsworth, really. And how did you find Oxford when you got there? You were at St Hugh's College. And at the time, I mean, what was the gender balance like at Oxford University? There was one girl for every seven men when I went up to Oxford in October 1962. Was that fun? No, no, it wasn't. It was because we we'd always been encouraged to believe somehow that we were the second sex, all us girls. Because I remember very clearly, you know, being told, you know, you you'll never have a boyfriend because you're a you're bespectacled, but b you you know you're clever and you must keep it very quiet. Did you enjoy your time there? Did you feel as though... I loved it. It was the first time in my entire life that anybody had asked my intellectual opinion or cultural opinion about anything because I think my school days were admirably thorough but I sat for six or seven years in a desk and took notes. That was all we did. And did you ever get involved in student politics or the union? We often hear about these. I didn't get in. No, it was drama. Because I remember I was in... There was a play called Noah. I think it was written by a man, a Frenchman called André Aubé. And I was... I remember being ham in that. (laughs) And it was awfully like having to, you know, always be the boy in dancing classes. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a professional writer? Because you leave Oxford and you begin to work as a civil servant. Is that correct? I do, yes. Yeah. I, I worked in a very furtive little... Now, it's now disbanded, uh, a department of the Foreign Office. I think you have to remember that I grew up 
pre-screens of any kind. And so writing was terribly important. My mother was a creative. She was writing. My father played the piano. It was all very sort of cultivated, although there was no money at all. It was very, very shoestringy. But I think I always knew at some instinctive level that I could... I could somehow translate to people. I could speak to people of my age group about contemporary dilemmas, about problems. I could somehow get through to them. I think it was no more than that. And you worked briefly as a teacher as well. I did. Well, I in those days, I always wanted to work, and it was very, very much unencouraged, discouraged for and, girls to work. And you were married at, at the And time. I was married. That was why I had to leave the Foreign Office, because in those days, the Foreign Office in the late 60s, you, you couldn't go on working in the Foreign Office if you were married. I know it's, it's perfectly extraordinary. So I trained as a teacher because I terribly wanted a baby. And it struck me that Teaching was something that would fit in round having children. You know, you had the same holidays. And in those days, too, if you had a reasonable degree from, I think it was Oxford or Cambridge or London, and you were inspected by somebody from the Department of Education regularly and you got a good report from your headmistress, you could qualify as a teacher. So I did a year at Farnham Girls Grammar School and got us certified at the end it was extraordinary and when you're I suppose it feels as though you've always been a writer in many ways Mm. but and I I think this is a problem that also relates to the present day which is making a living (laughs) off of writing always seems quite a daunting prospect it is so how do you start to make that pivot because at one point you write under a pseudonym don't you Um, no that was that came later and I think it was wholly unnecessary the pseudonym which is Caroline Harvey was a question of taking my two trollop grandparents first names and putting them together so one was called Caroline Trollope and the other was called Harvey Trollope. So I've just put it together to make Caroline Harvey. But it was a, a publisher's decision about 20 years ago that all the historical stuff should be Caroline Harvey and all the contemporary stuff should be Joanna Trollope because that would be easy for the readers. But actually the readers are so intelligent that there was absolutely no need for this. Actually, they could have coped. Of course they could. (laughs) I mentioned in the introduction that you're a collateral descendant of um, Anthony Trollope. Has it ever come in useful being able to point to a vague no. relation to a famous writer? It's made it's made absolutely no difference at all, which I somehow think is rather suitable. You know, you've got to make your way in your own way. I have to say that I'm not a direct descendant of his, but my fa- my late father looked awfully like him, you know, with a head like an upended light bulb and rather kind of rather sort of mild eyes and so on. Quite extraordinary. Anthony Trollope wore spectacles, but he wasn't he wasn't pretty, and he hated being not pretty. He hated being such a plain, awkward fellow. He really did. And although I admire him hugely, I don't 
want to sort of write like him. I, I think he's amazing for his time. You know, when you think he was writing in the... I suppose he was writing in the middle of the 19th century because his mother's, The Domestic Manners of the American People, was published in, I think, 1827. Terribly early, long before Queen Victoria got to the throne. So how did your first book deal come about? I'd, I'd written a book about the Battle of Waterloo. It's called Eliza Stanhope. And it had been rejected by a number of people. And so I'd rather wetly sort of given it up and thought, oh, this is hopeless. And my brother brought a financial journalist girlfriend to stay And she said, why are you being so completely pathetic? You start with X at the top of the list and you work your way down to Y at the bottom. And, you know, why are you you just being so sort of wet about it? You know, you've got to be tough. You've got to sell yourself. And in those days, it was a question of parceling up an entire manuscript and sending it in a brown paper parcel, an unwieldy brown paper parcel. But I've still got the letter that it was Hutchinson who wrote back to me and said, Dear Miss Trollope, would you like to come and discuss your future? So that's a very sacred letter. And that's that's a document, you know, that's a, a piece of paper with typing on it. How does it feel seeing your first book in, in print bound? I don't think it's ever less exciting. It's thrilling. Even it's at 22. It's absolutely <laughs> thrilling. Well, I think it is. I mean, Jane Austen wrote to Cassandra about Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility. I can't remember which, her first two books. And she said to Cassandra, I have just taken delivery of my darling child. So I think to see your book in, in a hardcover form, in the livery in which it is going out into the world... It's incredibly exciting. How does it then feel when criticism or critics write reviews of your books? Well, that's fine because, you know, a really a really intelligent adverse review is a very constructive thing. You know, you learn a lot as a writer from it. A kind of idle review, a bit like the Argosaga thing, you know, where you think, oh, well, that's somebody very nervous or very envious or male, or something of that kind, who who doesn't really understand what I'm trying to do. That's, you know, that's almost inevitable, that they would be patronising, they'd try and put you down. So I think it's a question of a good review, which is always a balanced review, you know, being incredibly instructive. I think you really learn from them. And have you found the rise of online and the fact that now, you clearly have reviews that run in papers, uh, current affairs magazines, and, and and so forth. But you also have a, the thing where now anyone can now go and rate your writing online, whether it's, you know, Goodreads or on the Amazon store. Is that uh, a positive process or can that also be quite frustrating? And I don't mean it in relation to your ratings, but I imagine if I'd written a book and if people just clicked the one star, you know, and didn't leave any comment, I would find it quite annoying. Well... <laughs> It, in a way, it's annoying, and yet it's sort of not, you know, because, there, you know, you have a different reaction. You have as many readers as, as there are people in the world, and there are there are always be people who won't like what you've written. 
So I think that's sort of perfectly fair. It's a bit sad in a way, I think, that the, that the whole social media thing means that the democratisation of opinion has meant that the people who really have a really valid and interesting opinion often don't bother. It's just the, you know, the flag wavers. The book that I think um, sometimes received the most attention is the one that perhaps was when your career got a real boost, mm. so to speak, is um, The Rector's Wife. Well, it was in the... It was number one for 50 weeks or something absolutely incredible. But that, that was... I had three books, three paperbacks in the bestseller top ten then. And that was a very different world. You know, it was pre every kind of technology. And you displaced Geoffrey Archer from the top of the bestseller list with that book. Yes, I did rather. I think he was quite indignant about that. Was that satisfying? <laughs> well, um, do, do I feel it satisfying? I, I think I don't really mind, which I think will annoy him very much indeed. Yeah, because I don't really care. <laughs> so, so obviously, as you mentioned, that book is at the top for some time and then it's also turned into a television show. Yes. Um, We've off, I've read of many horror stories of when people have their their novel turned into, whether it's a big screen adaptation or TV series, even when others like the mm. programme. I think the author can often spot lots of things mm. they don't like because things do get changed. How did you find that as an experience? It was That was particularly wonderful because Lindsay Duncan, who played the rector's wife, had gone into hospital to have her only son, I think, which must be 30 years ago now. And she took the paperback in with her. And so she got the whole thing going. It it was absolutely amazing. She was the only begetter of the whole project. And it was really very, very sort of peaceful. I can't remember exactly who the cast was now. But it it was it felt to me as if it was quite true to what I'd written, you know. It was quite true to the book, but on the other hand, you know, I've had some bad experiences since. The choir was one because that was made into a television series, and that was wholly inaccurate because you know whoever was the producer never read the book commissioned an orchestra in Bulgaria or something. It was it was ludicrous. When you were agreeing um, to live people to have the rights to, to making an adaptation, can you try and keep certain levels of control or does it just get to the point where you... You can now. I don't think I would have done... I would have been given any clout or any say-so early on. Of course I wouldn't. But I think I'm now established enough and old enough that people are definitely going to do what I say. And if I say it's horrible, then they're going to think again. Now, your novels have been very popular, as we touched on with the bestsellers, and also in the introduction, 8 million and, and more sold around the world. We talked a little bit about critics, and you mentioned the Arga Saga, that phrase. I was wondering, I think one of the... Not the recurring theme in the sense that your work has been heavily praised and it's very popular, but there is this section or, you know, a certain faction of thinking which is is to suggest it's a light, more lightweight than 
other genres and I just wondered whether that bothers you now I mean the proof is in the sales I suppose but how do you respond to it? They should be very bothered all those people without emotional intelligence should be extremely bothered because they're not really grown up are they poor things do you think um and you might dispute that it's even women's fiction but do you think that women's fiction is taken less seriously than men's much less seriously yes but then on the other hand the important thing the important statistic is that i think nearly 70 percent of books bought in this country are bought by women because women give books as presents. You know, they, they, they do an awful lot of sharing. They, they have book clubs. You know, they, they read all the time. And we'd be desperate without the female support. And I think the thing is that women are not afraid of being emotionally intelligent. You know, women don't see failure as something that is a disaster and you can never hold your head up again. They just think, oh, well, that's part of a blip on life's journey. You know, I'll do it better next time. We mentioned earlier how you were written under a pseudonym at at someone else's behest when you were splitting those things. I wonder, do you think if you had written a book with um, a pseudonym which was a man's name, it would receive... Like J.K. Rowling? Yeah, uh, to a degree, it would potentially receive a different Mm. um, review or, or response from critics... It might. It's obviously a bit of a hypothetical question. Yes, <laughs> I, I think yes, I think it might. But there's a kind of fundamental dishonesty to it. You know, why would you have to manipulate the market that way? And the fact that the review space is very reduced because you're female, and the the non-fiction books written by men are reviewed by men mostly it doesn't mean one's sales are any less good I mean if you just have to look at the bestseller list now moving to the present day as we touched on you you're still writing um lots of people would have retired at this point um <laughs> that's not a suggestion to yourself but I was wondering what is it that um keeps you going rather than perhaps just going on a very long cruise I think if you're creative you always you're always always striving to do something better because I you know when I look at novels I wrote sort of 30 years ago like The Rector's Wife I wouldn't write them quite well that way now and you know things keep changing and humanities changes and the, the world we live in changes all the time sometimes for the better. We talked a lot about female writers and how often they, they cannot get a hard time in terms of criticism rather than sales, perhaps. But I was wondering, um, what's been your experience of female writers helping one another? Because I think you previously said that you um, f- agreed with Madeleine Albright in the sense that there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. Well, I do believe in that because I think women are very, very judgmental about other women. And I don't think that's on. I mean, you know, there are women who want to rule the world. There are women who want to stay at home and make jam tarts with a three-year-old. And we really should accept that we're not all going to be the same. We're not all going to have the same ambition. 
And so can we just stop being so judgmental about each other? And I think we're judgmental because if a woman has done, has followed another path from the one we followed ourselves, we say that's no good. So, it, you know, that applies to women who choose to not to have babies. Well, of course, that's their choice or might not be their choice, poor things. Exactly. So it, it, I think we've, we start from the position of being much less judgmental about each other and then and just far more a band of sisterhood, far more that we're helping each other, we're encouraging each other and we are supporting, standing by each other. On that, I was just saying, so you would describe yourself as a feminist? Well, I'm, I'm an old school feminist. I'm very keen on equality of opportunity and anybody can do anything. You know, a girl can be a plumber or a physicist or anything. You, you shouldn't have to. But I, I think it's got a bit muddy. The waters of feminism have got a bit muddied recently. In but, what sense? In... Well, only that they're, they're, they're so factionalised and so opposed to each other. It's all got so very sectarian. When, when we're looking at your writing, um, is it true you still write in longhand? I do. Yes, I do. Well, because I'm, I'm so old that I always started writing that way and I just go on writing the novels that way. If I do, I'm doing any journalism, I'll do, those on, do that on the computer. But the novels, I'm, you see, I'm describing a movie I can hear and see in my head. And there's something about my handwriting. My hand writes at exactly the pace, the right pace. And then just the final few things. I saw that you recently said that you supported assisted dying. Yes. And we're expecting the government to bring that back at one at, at some point or, or is at least going to return to being a live issue in the House of Commons. One of um, my recent guests on this podcast, Therese Coffey, was saying one of her proud achievements was stopping <laughs> assisted dying. Yes. Um, do you think that's something that, if if it does return um, into the public sphere, is something that is being debated in the Commons that you would campaign for or kind of speak in favour of? No, but I would always expect my opinion to be out there. I wouldn't ever expect it not to be. And I think medical science has achieved enormous things in terms of our longevity, but we're not, we don't have quality of life while all those extra years... Um, now, the final two things. The, my last guest, Prue Leaf, someone you've known for many years, um, was talking about finding love at 70. Yes. And um, she's currently in the process of building a house with she her. She is. I've seen it. It's, oh, does it look it's, nice? It's, it's enormous. Yes, it's <laughs> apparently, a palace. Apparently it's going to have a huge library. It is. Mm. Um, you've, huge you've, everything. <laughs> you've said you're very happy living alone right now. I love uh, it, yes. Yeah, um, uh, you've been married previously. Are you interested in meeting people or, or do you enjoy a I love life? meeting people. But I, I don't want another romantic relationship. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. You know, I, I can't imagine anybody who'd change my mind. But I have an enormous bevy of friends. And they are fantastic. But I, I am so glad, often to close the front door and lean against it and know that I don't have to speak to anybody for 48 hours. It's perfectly wonderful.
And then to end, I'm just going to ask you a question we've asked everyone who's come on this podcast, which is um, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given and perhaps and hopefully ignored? I would think the worst advice I was ever given was to say you're only a girl, therefore you can't achieve anything. Which was what people said in the 1940s to almost everybody who was a girl. Thank you, Jenna. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.